Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Helen Fry, and we discuss her brilliant new book, Spymaster, The Man Who Saved MI6, which takes a look at the secret world of former MI6 officer Thomas Kendrick. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can support it in a few ways. First of all, please do leave a review on your podcast app. All reviews help us gain more listeners as it raises the awareness of the podcast. I don't know if you know, but all podcast apps are algorithm-based, and the more interaction the show gets, the more listeners it attracts. You can also become a friend of the podcast through Patreon. For £3 a month, you can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show. You'll get a free copy of my film, The Dry Cleaner. Also, you can join us on Twitter. You can directly interact with me by going to at Secrets and Spies. And lastly, you can watch my short spy film, The Dry Cleaner, which was my first attempt at original spy fiction. It's now available on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. It comes in, I think, around about $2.99. So, without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Dr. Helen Fry, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be on the podcast. Thank you. Well, it's wonderful to have you on. You've written this fantastic book, and I say it truly is fantastic. I've been reading it over the weekend called Spymaster, The Man Who Saved MI6. Before we dive into that book, I suppose, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I'm a historian majoring primarily on the Second World War, Mm -hmm. and I've written quite a bit about the 10,000 Germans who fought for Britain, most of them, the vast majority of them, Jewish refugees. And of course, they very quickly get taken up for secret operations and stuff behind enemy lines and and intelligence. And so that's really my background. Yeah, fantastic. So you've written this wonderful book, Spymaster. Can you tell us about why you chose to write this book and also how you went about researching it? Because obviously a lot of the information in there is from sort of government archives and you haven't got access to all of them. So it's it's, uh, quite an epic piece of work you've got here. Well, I suppose it's I mean, it has taken about 20 years because Thomas Kendrick lived in the shadows of Mm. SIS, Secret Intelligence Service, slash MI6, for nearly 40 years. And I came across his name in a book written by historian Michael Smith about Kendrick's friend, Frank Foley. Yes, yeah. And Frank Foley had a very similar career, although they diverge a bit during the Second World War. And there's just a a short amount about Kendrick. And I thought, my gosh, if Michael's been able to piece together Foley's secret career, I was just inspired by Kendrick and his spying operations in Vienna. I thought, what can I find out? And that started a journey. And it's taken time because, of course, it's a slow game when you're researching intelligence history, and particularly a top MI6 spymaster. There's virtually nothing out there about him. And so the challenges of the research really is, well, where to start looking? I mean, the family just gave me one 
A5 sheet, so not even A4, with bullet points about his life that they knew where he was born and what he did in World War One and that kind of thing. Mm. So that's all I had to go on. And I had to really dig deep into the archives. And then one final thing to say, one day I came across one of my very close veterans, the late Fritz Lustig, who was a secret listener during World War Two, And he said, you know, you'd be telling the stories of the 10,000 German Jews. No one's ever told the story of our unit. Well, we had this commanding officer. You, well, you won't have heard of him. His name's Thomas Kendrick. And I said, I have heard of him, actually. And Fritz was astonished by this. He said, but nobody's heard of him. And that dual aspect meant that I began to penetrate his story because, of course, the files for the World War II operation have been declassified. And but there's still quite a lot that still is classified, isn't there? Yeah, there is. I mean, as you will have read in the book, Kendrick's life crosses that of Rudolf Hess, who mm. bailed out over Scotland in May 1941. And we know that there are still files surrounding Hess, which have been withheld. I mean, there's no idea why. I don't know. It's deemed sensitive for whatever reason. And I guess one has to respect that. But also for the 1930s, there's very little about the 1930s intelligence work released into the archives. And of course, MI6 files themselves are never released. So it is quite a tricky task, but it's mm. possible to build quite a comprehensive picture. Yeah. And am I right, you did interview some veterans and family members and family members of veterans and sort of people on the periphery, didn't you? Yes, I did. Absolutely. I interviewed some of the World War II veterans, intelligence officers and secret listeners. I've worked with families with Kendrick's grandchildren who were born in Vienna, actually, mm. in the early oh, wow. 30s. Yeah. yeah. And so they witnessed the events because Kendrick was based in Vienna in the 1920s and 30s as sort of most senior British spymaster. So they remember the dramatic times when Hitler invaded Austria. I interviewed them. They have eyewitness accounts and memories of, for example, during the World War Two, the, the German generals who were being held at Kendrick's secret units after capture. They remember them coming to the house for afternoon tea and things like that. And also the children, the grandchildren of Kendrick's personnel who knew nothing, really. They just knew, oh, you know, my father did something secret, never talked about it. And so for them, it's also been a journey. Mm, oh, I bet, I bet. Now, your book's only just recently come out. What reaction has there been so far to the book? Oh, well, I've been delighted because, of course, it was uh, prominently covered in the Times newspaper. There was a wonderful mm. review which mm. calls for this man to be that sort of hidden hero to be recognised in our nation's history. But also the Jewish Chronicle it has led a campaign, I mean, if people Google this, has led a campaign to support my application to have Kendrick recognised as a righteous Gentile at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, because he went on to save in 1938 a whole generation of Austrian Jews who would have lost their lives in the Holocaust if it hadn't been for him. And what's the official reaction been to your sort of research on Thomas Kendrick? Have I heard from MI6? Uh, mm. Not knowingly, no. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Um, I've no doubt they've probably read the book, um, but I haven't had any reaction. I hope it'll go down well because I have been sensitive and I've been careful only to use open sources, material that's in the public domain, so that we, we keep anything that has to be sealed for secrecy mm. secret. Mm. But 
but what do I know? I'm a historian. I'm still learning. Yeah, yeah. Well, if there's a book club in MI6, I'd imagine this would be the uh, book for this month. But anyway. <laughs> Compulsory reading for all uh, members of MI6, yes. Yeah. Well, just speculating just madly for a moment, I, whilst reading the book, one of the things that my mind turned to was obviously the war on terror and why, and some lessons that have been missed, maybe. Because I think the way Kendrick worked with prisoners of war, in many ways, was quite a humane way of dealing with prisoners of war in comparison to sort of what's been going on in sort of recent times. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he disavowed any roughing up prisoners in interrogation because, you know, it's against the Geneva Convention. He had no contravention of that at any of his secret sites in the wartime. He was a sort of gentleman spy and he knew that if you rough up someone in interrogation, they're not going to give you anything necessarily reliable. I mean, they're just going to tell you what you want to hear. And so what he instigates is this whole, this amazing world where you charm your prisoners, the German generals, for example, you can't really interrogate them. They're not going to give you anything. Let's treat them as military gentlemen in a stately home in North London. That was Trent Park at at Cockfosters. Let's give them wine and whiskey and take them to Harrods on shopping sprees and and you think this is just oh, we'll give them a fake aristocrat called lord aberfeldy who befriend them and of course they weren't thinking why are we held in this beautiful house mm. with microphones the, well they didn't know the microphones were embedded in the walls in the plant pots in the billiards table so it's very clever understanding of how to get intelligence but then of course kendrick had already spent 30 years get, gaining secrets from people he needed secrets from. Yeah, and I, I'm just glad this book exists now because maybe maybe people, sort of military people and what have you, might now actually um, take note of some of these methods and uh, maybe consider using them in the future if there are any future conflicts. Yeah, I mean, just very, yeah, very clever way of gaining intelligence and thereby finding what you need to know but also mm. you know eavesdropping on those unguarded conversations of prisoners in their rooms or at the stately home you also get the material you don't realize you absolutely need to know mm. Mm. <laughs> and we got a lot of stuff as you read about the technology and it is said in intelligence circles that without Kendrick's unit working closely with Bletchley Park and RAF Medmanham the aerial photography stuff we still could have lost the war as late as February 1945. And I find that Mm. incredible because Mm. we were eavesdropping and picking up the latest German technology, which if we hadn't discovered in time, absolutely we would have lost the war. Yeah. Well, let's delve into Kendrick's life a little bit. So can you talk to us a little bit about his early life and how he first became involved in intelligence gathering for the British government? Yeah, so he he's British, but born in Cape Town, South Africa in 1881. Mm. He actually serves for a few months at, right at the end of the Boer War. And there he's in the bicycle brigade. And what is he doing on a bicycle? Well, he's, a, he's actually cycling behind enemy lines. And of course, we're spying on the Germans in South Southwest Africa and really looking at the development of weapons and technology, even very mm. basic stuff then before the outbreak of World War One as well. So he's mixing after the Boer War in the diamond mining communities. And what I discovered was that some of the key characters that go on to found Secret Intelligence Service, otherwise known as MI6, actually cut their teeth in intelligence 
in South Africa in that early period of the 20th century. And they're mixing amongst the diamond mining communities with the international links. I mean, absolutely fascinating stuff. And the other thing I think of relevance, because Kendrick goes on to be this incredible spy master that loves the cocktail parties, that loves socialising. He's very cultured. He likes to go to opera. His father actually purchased, just before the 1900s, he purchased the Hotel Metropole in Cape Town mm. for a staggering £16,000. Mm. I mean, what, millions? So we're talking about the sort of writs of Cape Town. And so Kendrick was used to that world. He'd got the experience of intelligence behind enemy lines on his bicycle, but he's also got this incredibly high-level social life, which he'd sort of come to enjoy from his from his parents. Mm. I started to wonder now whether um, Kendrick's the inspiration for 007. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly the cocktails. He liked his cocktails. Yeah. Pink, pink gin and uh, the sidecar. Yeah, I know. I yeah. love it. It's <laughs> fantastic. You couldn't ask for more, really, this. Well, he knew Fleming. They cr- they crossed paths in the early 1930s in Kitzbühel yeah. in Austria and in Vienna, and again in the Second World War. So Fleming seems to appear everywhere. But the interesting thing, of course, in the history of intelligence, sometimes it's characters like Kendrick, of which there's complete silence, or maybe the old little paragraph in the mm. occasional book. Yeah, that complete silence. Maybe they are the really important characters that we should now start trying to uncover yeah. and, and yeah. really to appreciate their legacy. Mm, mm, no, definitely. Well, he, you know, he's a he should be a national hero. Uh, he really should be. Yeah, yeah, I really believe yeah, that. Definitely. So, can you talk to us a little bit about Kendrick's World War One career? Because it starts in Africa and then eventually he ends up in in France, doesn't he? He does. So he's got a very close friend who becomes his brother-in-law, Rex Pearson. So the mm. two men married two sisters. And Rex Pearson eventually goes also to work for MI6, but he's stationed in France in intelligence after being wounded in in the war. Kendrick is in Southwest Africa for for a time until 1916-17, and there he's processing prisoners of war, uh, civilians, really analysing any potential spies, that kind of thing, security matters. And he does a fantastic job. And it's Rex Pearson, his brother-in-law, at one point says, why don't you transfer, sends him a message and says, why don't you transfer to the Intelligence Corps in France? So he joins Rex there in France. Rex is sending pigeons behind enemy lines with secret messages and messages <laughs> back and all that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. And Kendrick is actually involved in processing thousands of captured German prisoners of war for intelligence and also running spy networks. So he is involved in counterespionage, running agents behind enemy lines. Mm. And he meets some really interesting people in that time, doesn't he? He does. He crosses paths with Stuart Menges, who becomes the third head of MI6, mm-hmm. Payne Best, who who is later captured in a, in a sting by the Germans at Venlo. So, so yeah. your listeners may know about Venlo incident, the capture of two British spies in November 39 on the Dutch-German border. But you also have Frank Foley, again, who be- later does espionage work in Berlin. Uh, Claude Dancy, who becomes later the deputy head of MI6. So some very interesting characters. Mm. It leads to his then career in SIS, um, yes. which was formed out of the Secret Service Bureau in uh, 1923, is it? 23, was it MI6? I should know this. Now. Well, 1909. <laughs> 1909. 1909. Yes, and then it splits into what we know today as MI5 and SIS. 
S. Yeah. And he, he ends up being posted to, which is my favourite spy city, Vienna, oh. um, in the 1920s. I love Vienna. Yeah. Um, and I could talk for hours about Vienna. But um, And in fact, your book, <laughs> thank you, because now I've got, when I next go back to Vienna, there's so many places I'm going to go and try and check out now. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. Uh, what do they look like? The buildings are still there and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, talk to us about his time in Vienna. It's sort of split into two periods, the 1920s and then the 1930s. So we'll talk about the 20s first. Yeah, so the 20s, the threat, mm. of course, from the Bolsheviks. You've had the Russian Revolution. You've got Soviet spies, Russian spies coming, agents coming in and out of Vienna has now replaced Paris. Paris is the centre of espionage in the First World War. Vienna is now the kind of pivotal centre where you've got spies of all countries coming in and out. Now, Kendrick doesn't send spies into the Soviet Union or Russia, but he does actually send his networks. He has a huge network through Czechoslovakia, Hungary, into Italy, eventually into Germany, of course, into Romania and Bulgaria. So he's got quite a large area and he is monitoring the threat from Russia. And it's a very real threat, as people can read in my book. And there are concerns also that in Czechoslovakia, there are some companies developing chemical weapons. I mean, how topical is that even in the late 1920s? So that's the threat that he's a destabilization of democracy, potentially. And he does manage to map this incredible spy network of of the Russians and that we hadn't appreciated before. I worked on the declassified files. And then if we look at the 30s, suddenly with the rise of Nazism and with with Hitler, he has now got this double threat. Mm. He's spying on the Russians, yes, but also sending agents into Germany, into the docks and the ports, like Wilhelmshaven and Kiel, to look what U-boats, what new battleships are the Germans building and what's the capability, what's the German threat and the rearmament program. And, you know, we mustn't underestimate it's incredibly dangerous work. But the Germans, as you know from the book, didn't they knew there was this really competent, high-ranking British spy in Vienna, but they, they had no idea who he was. They just called him the elusive Englishman. <laughs> I love that. He's kind of in the shadows and you know, yeah. they just didn't know who he was, but they were get, they were hunting him down. Obviously they were desperate to yeah. get information on him. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about his modus operandi, how he operates in Vienna? Well, you know, it is quite difficult to piece together number one, mm. his spy network and completely I mean, I do do manage some success, particularly in the early 30s, where you've got the clashes on the streets of Vienna between the left and the right, the, the extreme political, physical battles, actually. And then the communists, of course, going underground. And you've got characters like Kim Philby there. So people will be interested in my comments and my analysis mm. on him and Hugh Gateskill and people like that. But basically, Kendrick's running journalists, agents to try well following people tapping into various organizations listening into conversations but essentially particularly in the late 20s and 30s he's hosting cocktail parties we understand he had a party at least once a week and then of course he would attend parties he attended opera and concerts and he's he's just building a network of friends amongst also the Austrian and Czech nobility and aristocracy, as well as intellectuals and ordinary people amongst the journalistic world as well. So anyone 
that could give him information and you never know when any of those contacts are going to be useful yeah especially with the war on the horizon by the end of the 30s so in, in march 1938 the onschluss happens i hope yes. i pronounced that correctly yes um, and that's the annexation of austria by nazi germany and then obviously local jews became desperate to escape and a humanitarian crisis unfolds can you talk to us about how kendrick tried to help local jews and obviously you mentioned frank foley before there's some similarities there and a lot of mi6 officers sort of went to great lengths to try and help the jews during this time can you talk to us about kendrick's operations then yes because his legacy has yet to be recognized and we're mm. hoping that yad vashem will recognize him now as a righteous gentile you know what had happened in Germany gradually, the erosion of rights for Jews and then, of course, uh, their lives being at threat and the Nuremberg laws in 1935, that was very, very slow. The persecution of Jews gradually builds, but for, for Austria, it happens overnight. And within just a couple of weeks, you have 500 intellectuals, Jewish intellectuals committing suicide. You've got the rounding up of around 7,000 males on the 1st of April. So within a couple of weeks, Sigmund Freud's apartment is raided. He, he's the subject of two Gestapo raids. These are really dangerous times. And some of Kendrick's agents are at threat as well, Eric Geddy, a journalist, but the Germans suspected him also of espionage and they didn't like his reporting. So Kendrick smuggled him and his mistress, later his wife actually, out. And you have, you know, the following day, Kendrick looks out and there are just hundreds of Jews mm. right around the building of the British passport office. And so now he has to divert from his intelligence work because normally he wasn't doing the visa work. That was left mm. to his staff. Now he's working up to 12 hours a day to save. And he does. He saves a whole, he and his staff save a whole generation of Austria's Jews and foreign office files put it up to 200 a day. Wow. I mean, that's wow. a heck of a legacy. Mm, mm. You know, when you think of the scale of the operation. And mm. he, yes, he, he worked through legal channels. But when the British government tightened up and started to frustrate efforts, he started to turn to illegal means of smuggling Jews and actually communists that he'd been spying on just a few years earlier. They were also at risk under the Nazi regime. So he starts to smuggle them out. And he's forging passports, marriage certificates. He's stamping a thousand illegal visas for youngsters in their te or teenagers to go to a so-called sporting event in what <laughs> yes. was then, yeah, what was then yeah. Palestine, knowing yeah. that they wouldn't come back. And there's just one story, actually. Well, there's lots of stories that that stand out that people can read about. But I interviewed the late Lord George Weidenfeld. He, of course, went on to found the publishing company Weidenfeld and Nicholson. And I interviewed him about his time in Vienna, and he's spoken about it in his autobiography. And he said to me, you know, I would never have got out without Kendrick. I was 19 years old. I didn't qualify. My, I didn't have the right papers. I just didn't qualify for a visa. And he sort of snatched the papers across the desk as his mother had burst into tears. And Kendrick stamped the papers and said, just get out. You know, they won't come back for you, but just, you won't be sent back, but just get out of the country. So he forged the stamps uh, on his papers. And very movingly, George said to me, what happened to the man who saved my life? And I thought, my gosh, for 70 years, he didn't know what happened to Kendrick. Mm. So we were able to discuss that. And that was a very special moment. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. 
That's brilliant. Can you talk to us a little bit about sort of Kendrick's operation in Czechoslovakia? Because he was still running it even when the Nazis were in control in Austria. Yes, and Czechoslovakia was a threat and particularly of concern during May, May to July, August 1938. We have managed with the help of a family to uncover one of his agents, um, Willie Bondi. Willie decided not to, he was Jewish, but he decided not to come out with the rest of the family. Kendrick managed to get the rest of the family out. But you get a sense, he was based in Bruno, which is about an hour, hour and a half from Vienna. And we get just a glimpse. Now, Czechoslovakia is, we just know that Kendrick had covered Czechoslovakia, but we have very little understanding of the precise agents and spies who worked for him but Willie Bondy definitely did and Willie decided to stay behind was still passing intelligence to the British and ultimately died in Auschwitz actually he sacrificed his own life not because he was Jewish but because Starpo reports make it clear because he was helping the British in intelligence but I also have as you will know from the afterward a royal reveal of a, of a Czech lady who mm. helped who was working very firmly for Kendrick has a royal link which is very exciting actually put the record straight mm. for that family which is rather nice yeah that must be nice actually that must be give some closure and because uh, she was if i remember correctly she was considered to be a nazi sympathizer i think is that right well her husband yeah mm. so basically mm. of course we're talking about the mother of her royal highness princess michael of kent who's Father's had a, a very um, rough kind of exposure as an SS officer. His his case is not quite so clear, actually. And he was mm. cleared of any war crimes um, at the end of the uh, the war by the British. But certainly, what we didn't know was that her mother, Countess Marianne Sapazi, was later from Reipnitz, was working for the British. And you think, oh my gosh, we could never have. I've realised that really, but she was right, working for the right side. And I think that's nice that the family going forward can have at least a glimpse, even if we don't know for sure exactly how and what mm. she did for MI6, because that's still classified. Mm. We get an insight into these incredible heroism, really, of women and men. So many nameless ones that helped Kendrick and others across Europe. Mm. So Kendrick eventually gets arrested in Vienna um, in 1938. Can you talk to us a little about sort of the events that led to that and, and what happened afterwards? He's, he's at risk. And because, as I said earlier, the the Germans are desperate. Uh, the Gestapo have got everything out looking for him. And ultimately, he is betrayed by a double agent. I mean, it's a, a typical, terrible, terrible scenario. And one wonders what would have happened if that double agent hadn't betrayed him. Mm. But with mm. devastating consequences, because he is arrested. His manager, who's helping to run the spy networks, Fred Richter, is arrested. And Kendrick realises that he could be next. He, he just got this sense that, that he's at risk. So he and his wife leave early one morning before 8am. And it's by about 8am, they're approaching the border. But the Gestapo are out for him. And there's an assassination attempt on his life. But at the border... Gestapo get him and they drive him back to Vienna and he has four days of Soviet-style interrogation, so pretty unpleasant mm. from what we understand. And I, I think he was, it's my, my theory that he was only released because mm. the Munich agreement was sort of on the cards, a meeting between Hitler and Neville Chamberlain, the kind of appeasement was on the cards and it was just to sort of warn the British government. But, you know, I don't think Kendrick would have got out alive if it hadn't been 
for Munich that was coming up the following month. But he did yeah. get out alive. He was very, very lucky. Yeah, very lucky. With that, we were lucky too, because had he not, then um, who knows how things would have played out, really. That's, uh, yeah, that's quite something. Yeah, for for what he goes on to achieve in the Second World mm. War, is it just blows one's mind, really. And yet he's just completely hidden in the shadows of, with this incredible legacy. But he is expelled from Vienna, I suppose it's quite topical, yeah. isn't it, to expel spies for spying, allegedly <laughs> spying. Yeah, especially in Vienna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, of course, it was always denied. I mean, he denied ever spying. The British government said, oh, he's not our spy. Well, we now know differently. Mm. He was the most important. And it says that actually in the official MI6 history, that Vienna was at that time the most important SIS station in Europe. And so, you know, suddenly he's expelled mm. and that whole network, the whole SIS network is at risk in Europe. And the spies and agents and passport control officers are all recalled mm. to London. Mm. So it's a devastating, it's the most devastating, described as the most devastating event to befall SIS in its first 30 years history. Mm. That mm. gives an idea of the significance of just how how bad that that this was oh, definitely one thing just mentioning the um, chamberlain's munich agreement i didn't realize that sis sort of played a role in persuading chamberlain to participate in that to kind of buy britain time to prepare itself for the inevitable war yeah i think somebody needs to write a new biography of chamberlain mm. because he's he's his reputation for the last 70 or 80 years Bless him, he's carried that. He probably knew that would happen. It's in the official MI6 history, and it is quite an eye-opener that we weren't ready. And SIS, the head of MI6, kind of steps in. One of the few occasions, according to its official history, that it has stepped Mm. in and said, look, if you don't sign Munich, we are at war immediately, and we absolutely are not ready. Mm. And so it's buying time. So it puts a whole new light on things. It does indeed. So no, no, it's, um, and you know, well done for sort of pulling that out and making a, a point of that. It was something I hadn't crossed my mind before, but it makes a lot of sense when when it's said. It's like, yeah, actually, it makes an awful lot of sense now. <laughs> Poor Chamberlain, you know. Yeah, he sacrifices his reputation for for you know for decades. Yeah. It says something about him, really. I think it does actually. It does. No, he's definitely worth revisiting at some point now. But mm. uh, no, it says a lot actually. So during this sort of pre-war period, MI6 was still in a sort of bad state it was underfunded and um, Kendrick plays a vital role in preparing SIS for war so can you talk to us about sort of how Kendrick helped get MI6 into shape and ready for the war yeah because what he does he sets up from mm. scratch with no blueprint mm. You know, how are we going to get intelligence on Nazi Germany? And there is a report which I uncovered, which says that until 1942, SIS and the agents really struggled to get intelligence back, proper intelligence back to London. How are we going to assess the threat and the capability of Nazi Germany? And with Kendrick's expulsion from Vienna, Mm. they also struggled to get agents and a network running or continuing in Italy. And there was a lot of military and naval build-up in Italy mm. and the threat of Mussolini, etc. So Italy was sort of uncovered. It was not covered and that was really, really of concern. But how are you going to get information of you know, Germany's capability. And Kendrick sets up a unit to it sounds very simple, but he sets up a tri-services mm. Army Air Naval Intelligence first of its kind, 
And of course, there was something parallel going on at Bletchley Park. But he sets up this unit to bug the conversations of German prisoners of war. And it, it goes on from the outbreak of war until about six months beyond the end of World mm. War Two to a mass and in industrial scale intelligence it is it's on an industrial scale of this intelligence gathering and when you look at these files and i think historians need to to pay much more attention to these mm. files you just think if you take away the information and intelligence that's gained from the unguarded conversations of prisoners of war of hitler's top commanders could we have won the war that is a very serious question mm. and kendrick achieves this in spite of internal bickering between the services. And he is credited at the end of the war with achieving this tri-services operation, quote from Norman Crockett, without a single inter-service fracas. (laughs) And we mustn't underestimate that, but he's got the vision and he sets in place methods of intelligence, which I understand go forward Mm. and prepared us for the Cold Mm. War. Mm. Can you talk to us about sort of Kendrick's sort of method of operation for collecting intelligence? So there's three techniques in particular that make his operation a success, aren't there? Yeah, so you do have interrogation, mm. no roughing up, as we said earlier. He kind of favoured a phony interrogation where the prisoners, we know that from the transcripts that survive, the prisoners thought we were stupid and incompetent. Oh, they don't know how to conduct an interrogation. And if I was the interrogating officer, I would have... I would have asked this and this. and So they think we're stupid. So deliberately, they have this sort of phony interrogation. When they go back to their room, they don't realise microphones and the light fittings and <laughs> the fireplaces. Yeah. And they start bragging to their mate what they haven't told the interrogating officers. <laughs> so that's that's very, very clever. But then you also get, so you've got the unguarded conversations. You've also got them reporting on the interrogation and what they haven't told. So again, they're starting to give stuff away. But they also make use of some stool pigeons. Now, these are, well, they were men, actually, stool pigeons. And they were British officers who would dress up in German uniform, pretending to be a German prisoner. It took a heck of a lot of flair and courage to do this, to hold your story, sometimes for days or a few weeks. Or it could be a prisoner who we managed to turn to work for us, send him back in the cell, and he'd lead the conversation in a particular way. So lots of different ways of gaining intelligence. And as I said earlier, with Hitler's top commanders, you give them a life of relative luxury, and they relax, and they start spilling the beans. Very clever. Mm. It's incredibly clever. It reminds me a little bit of the TV show The Prisoner. <laughs> and I don't know whether there were any connections to that show and, and this operation, because it does remind me a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just you you just think I mean, Kendrick had spent nearly thirty years working out human psychology. Mm. You know, when we think of those parties, how is he getting intelligence? We understand that he never, ever, his family said he never, ever gave his own political views away. You didn't really know what he thought about things, had a wonderful sense of humor. He just understood humans. And of course, it had a lot of interaction in his history with Germany, felt he understood the German psyche. He believed that cultures have their own kind of ways of doing things and, and, and psyche. So he's understanding how to get information from the prisoners coming through his three secret units. Mm. And um, 
and he was very much respected by his colleagues as well. What what were the skills that made him such a kind of good and effective intelligence officer and leader? Well, he was very efficient. Mm. He was efficient. He was fun-loving, sense of humour. I think it would probably be a bit near the mark today. We'd consider his humour probably quite risque. But it was he just very relaxed mm. and easygoing. And it wasn't just his colleagues, even Hitler's generals that were taken for afternoon tea thought he was a dear old decent military gentleman. Well, he was one of our most senior spymasters and they didn't realise mm. it. They just thought he was a kind, interesting, fun military gentleman. And I think it's probably as simple as that, mm. really. He was just adored by everybody that crossed his path. He was just good to be with and good fun. Mm. Mm. So he was involved with a few interesting interrogations and, and uh, eavesdropping operations. And one of them in particular was Rudolf Hess. So we've got a couple of chapters on Hess. And I'm not sure whether listeners will realise that Kendrick was one of the MI6 minders. There were three MI6 minders for Hess after Hess landed. He's eventually brought via the Tower of London to a place called Matchett Place near Aldershot. Mm. And Kendrick leaves his headquarters for just three or four months. And he is one of the minders living day by day with Hess. In fact, his bedroom was the one next to Hess's room. And we get from the declassified files some of the interactions between Kendrick and Hess. And so you can read that in the book and Kendrick wasn't given his real name. He was known as Colonel Wallace. And frequently, just one incident to say, Kendrick frequently had to swap his food with Hess because Hess was very suspicious that we were poisoning him. So he would insist that Kendrick would swap plates, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that Kendrick would eat the poison. And of course, it wasn't being poisoned. Um, but yeah, there's some interesting stuff. And the whole purpose was to see what intelligence we could get from Hess. Mm, mm, no, exactly. And there's some interesting things about, you mentioned about um, Latimer House and, and Hess. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. Well, I've given a number of talks locally mm. around Buckinghamshire and particularly at Latimer House. And frequently, this oral tradition kept coming up from different sources and different people. A question, you know, was Hess at Latimer? No. Latimer was fully functional from 1942. Hess landed in 41. But this persisted. And the staff would say to me sometimes, well, you know, Hess was here. And I say, no, you know, reasons why not. Then one day I didn't quite get a chance to reply. And one of the members of the staff said, do you want to see his room? And I thought, well, that's quite serious. <laughs> and I just kind of, uh, yes. I found myself saying, yes. It's completely irrational compared to what, you know, the declassified files. But I found myself saying, yes. So I was shown his room. And it was actually next to Kendrick's main room at Latimer House. And I said, how do you know? And he said, because over the years, veterans have come back, particularly ones that were from America, because we had American intelligence officers at Kendrick sites. And they wanted to come back to see the place where they were stationed in the wartime, the secret place, and they said Hess was here. And we've had some sightings by locals, but just to throw a bit of a spanner in the works, one of them said to me, of course, we don't know if it was the real Hess. <laughs> was it his impersonator? Yeah. <laughs> was it the real Hess or was it a double? I mean, honestly, 
are we going to get to the bottom of it? I have looked at the declassified files. There is a gap in the period where these sightings allegedly take place. And it's possible Hess was there for a short time. I do believe that yeah. now. That it is possible. Whether we can prove it ultimately, yeah. I don't know. Now, I'm assuming the room's not actually called the Rudolf Hess suite officially, is it? <laughs> No. Because <laughs> that would be a bit insensitive. <laughs> exactly. I'm not sure if they're going to tell anyone anymore. Oh, you're actually sleeping in Rudolf Hess's room. But they always treated Rudolf Hess very well. They always, he always had a bedroom and a sitting mm. room. And from all accounts, it seems he was treated very well. Yeah, yeah no. But he was obviously inherently paranoid, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, he was a bit of a nut. I mean, Kendrick decided, ultimately got fed up with this nutcase, um, messing them around. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, quite tricky time. I think he got completely fed up aboard with with Hess, who was very unstable. Yeah. Another fascinating thing that came out in the book was how there was a plan to invade Britain in 1943. Yes. Can you talk to us about this? Well, it's about never being surprised by what you're going to find in research. Yeah. And this was a deep dive. I, I've looked at a lot of the intelligence in my part one, almost my former book, The Walls Have Ears, um, Kendrick's operations. But I did a deep dive into some of the stuff for Kendrick's biography, so I'm not just repeating the stuff. And I discovered from, it was found to be true, actually, one of the prisoners that was brought in in, in July 1943, was they started to talk about V weapons, or they'd been talking about the V1, V2 before, just before that. But this prisoner unmasked, or unmasked for us, a plan that Hitler intended to invade Britain in September 1943 with the help of the V weapons. Well, could he have succeeded or not? That's that's not the, the issue, really. The issue is that he did have this plan, and we are learning more and more from these files. And if we hadn't knocked out Penny Mundi, if we hadn't bombed it, due to, based on this intelligence in the last three or four months before that, from Kendrick sites and the work of Arya Medmanum, those aerial photographies of Penny Mundi, if we hadn't bombed it in the middle of August 1943, I actually think we could have lost the war. We couldn't have mounted the D-Day landings. They could have turned the V1s on the troops coming up through Italy. And so I think sometimes people can be or historians can be dismissive saying oh no you know Hitler couldn't I don't think we could ever ever underestimate the seriousness and precarious nature in which we found ourselves and you know the bombing of that site thanks to Kendrick's secret listeners and intelligence officers meant that the first V1 did not land on London until a week after mm. D-Day it bought us nine months of time approximately yeah that's a significant amount of time in war <laughs> it's a significant amount of time and, and you know Hitler could have won the tech war. I don't think we, we mustn't underestimate mm. that. And we needed the intelligence. And what we're getting from Kendrick's sites is, yes, intelligence which corroborates stuff from Bletchley Park, and they're working very closely with Bletchley mm. Park, but they are getting tons and tons of intelligence that they're not getting from any other source. And so that's the significance of one of the significances of his operation. Mm. The other thing that came up was very interesting is how there was a sort of divide between pro-Nazi and kind of anti-Nazis among the kind of the senior prisoners at, at Kendrick's establishment. It is quite a surprise to mm. me because I wasn't again wasn't expecting. I just assumed that the vast majority would be Nazi, yeah. particularly amongst Hitler's generals. You find that they're being held transferred sometimes from Wilton Park and Latimer House in Buckinghamshire, eventually to Trent Park in North London. And they align themselves as pro-Nazi and anti-Nazi, and around two-thirds of them actually are, are anti-Nazi. And we have profiles of them. We're trying to understand 
which general has which kind of political views? Can we undermine their adherence to Hitler and that kind of thing? And they're going to give up intelligence. And you get this incredible life. I call it sort of Mad Hatter's Tea Party. You get the pro-Nazis and the anti-Nazis arguing. But we get an insight into the morale and the status of the top hierarchy, the military hierarchy around Hitler. And that's as important interestingly, as picking up some of the military stuff as well. And so you get, I'll just give you one one incident, because in the intelligence reports, I thought we would get the bug conversations, which we do. But we also get the life of Riley that's going on. And you've got the pro-Nazis worried that the anti-Nazis won't raise their glass of wine to Hitler on Hitler's birthday. And you think, what? what is this nonsense? But we're allowing it to go on. They're running the show at Trent Park because we're getting the intelligence from them. And, and, you know, their batsmen are mutinying because they want wine at dinner and we're only allowing them beer because of their status. And so they're refusing to polish the boots of the generals and make their beds. Can you imagine this in this house, this madness that's going yes. on? And all this is to get the intelligence. I, I just think it's crazy, but but amazing, really. Yeah. yeah, no, I think it's fantastic. I mean, you, know, you think about it in a modern context, it kind of semi-wouldn't flies there, because if a, the Daily Mail or somebody got hold of, you know, German prisoners being treated with whiskey and wine, you know, you could imagine the outrage. <laughs> well, absolutely. And lunches at the Ritz mm, Hotel. Mm. Who would think? I mean, it is outrageous. But you know, that's how we get the intelligence from them. And they go to Harrods with their little prisoner of war money. And Again, this quirky, you get the daily insight of their life. They had a fetish, an obsession for buying soap. So all these little bars of soap, they kept buying up luxury yeah. soap from Harrods. I mean, it's completely crazy and bonkers, but they are worried about that and not thinking about what they're talking about in their unguarded conversations. They're giving everything away. But in the basement of that house at Trent Park, this whole secret world, the listeners that are recording their conversations Mm. and those Mm. generals are giving up intelligence that we can't get any other way. I mean, it's just absolute brilliance on the part of Kendrick and his whole operation towards the end of world war ii obviously once world war ii had ended the european park kendrick's operation still carried on didn't it through to the end of 1945 can you talk to us about that period that late war period one would think actually Mm. that the armistice is signed in may 45 early may 45 that that would be it but it's not he has a fourth site which is farm hall near cambridge where the lead 12 lead atomic scientists end up and you can read about that in my book and the other books been written on that but at the other three sites trent park latimer house and wilson park we have other quite senior but technologist scientists uh one in particular general dornberger Mm. and i'd seen his stuff before when i was working on the walls have ears but again i took a deep dive into this and looked at Mm. him because he was a senior engineer technologist, if you like, overseeing Pennymunda where the V weapons were being developed, but also at the previous site at Kummensdorf. So he knew the whole of Germany's secret weapon program from early 1930s right the way through to the end of the war. He knew the capability, he knew also what they had in their mind, what they were developing. And he gives over through the interrogation, this, this whole paper is written on the history, the pages and pages of it, the whole history of Hitler's V weapon program. And that gives us vital intelligence ahead of the Cold War. And that's what I was told, that Dornberger's interrogation was the most important interrogation ahead of the Cold War. So Kendrick's unit is actually preparing us 
before the Cold War. We need to know what we need to snatch and grab in Germany but ahead of the Russians. But one other thing I might add in here, which is of relevance, which you've probably picked up on when you were reading it, we think naturally that we needed intelligence. Of course we did on the enemy, on Nazi Germany. But by 1943, we hadn't actually been spying on our allies. So we we had no intelligence really on Russia, on Russian capability. And for a while, when I was writing The Walls Have Ears, I kept kept niggling away at me. Why is all this Russian stuff in, in the conversations? Why are they keeping all of this? What's the concern? And then, of course, when I did a deep dive into this book, I realised that Kendrick was ensuring that his officers were also picking up vital intelligence. What did the German generals know about Russian fighting capability? What had they seen when they were fighting the Russians? And Dornberger, interestingly, gave up about the state of the Russian atomic weapon program. They were slightly ahead of the Germans at this point. And again, that was new to me. I mean, obviously, it all got overtaken. So we are not only gathering intelligence on Germany, but Kendrick's unit is gathering intelligence from 43 onwards on, on the Russians. And that, again, preparing us for the, for the Cold War. Yeah. Yeah. And one observation is really interesting at the early on in the book is about how wars are pretty much won in those early pre-war days and the intelligence you gather. So I think Kendrick gathering the intelligence during that time is very interesting. Well, you've got his intelligence officers were instructed at the end of the war mm. to write these, well, they're like academic papers and some of them are like 20, 30, 40 pages long. And it, I was astounded to see these in the archives. I don't think anyone's worked on it. There are papers on well, absolutely everything. So there's one on the German Secret Service, the Abwehr, German flak, infantry, tanks, I mean, whatever, absolutely anything you could think of, airborne forces, signals intelligence, there's a whole paper just on the equivalent of Bletchley Park, their interrogation methods, absolutely everything. So he's mapped everything we needed to know, or his personnel have under his instruction, that we needed to know about Nazi Germany. Mm, mm. And that's all in the archives now, is it, you're saying? Yeah. So if anyone wants some work to do, there's plenty of it. Yeah, book to, idea. <laughs> yeah, if you want to major on airborne forces, German airborne forces, one should be reading this stuff. Mm. And of course, the largest number of paratroopers came through Wilson Park and were carefully handled and interrogated because they had interesting and important material, mm. particularly around the Ardennes campaign. So absolutely every aspect of the war is covered in these transcripts and intelligence files. And historians, I think, will start to find some real gems if they can work through them. Fantastic, fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about what happened to Kendrick after the war? Well, all we know is that he's sent back because mm. he's he's seconded partly to the war office MI5 for the wartime. On his file, it just says, his personal file, back to MI6. And he works for MI6 until his retirement in 1948. We don't know what he did. So that's a sort of gap. But what we do know, a letter from the head of MI5 to the head of MI6 saying, we're going to let you have your man Kendrick back. He's too important to send to post-war Germany on similar Mm. work, what could be more important than this? So we don't know. He's too important to send to post-war Germany. We're going to give him something else to do. So I don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's running agents again and who knows. But then he retires and dies in 1972 Mm. at the age of 91. So he had a good long life. 
And in retirement, he enjoyed crickets at Lourdes, <laughs> uh, South African rugby, and of course, the cocktail parties. Yeah, no, fantastic. Well, <laughs> not a bad way to go in that regard. Just very quickly, got a scene at his funeral, which I oh, yeah, talk about. Yeah. The grandson yeah. was saying in the church, he turned around and sort of said to his mother, who are those men? And they were in trench coats and trilby hats, just a typical John le Carre scene. And she said, oh, they're from the British Secret Service. <laughs> it's like the family knew like virtually yeah. nothing about this man's secret life. And then you get a whole row of the Secret Service turning up at his funeral. Yeah, I mean, yeah. incredible, isn't it? It is, it is. In fact, one person we've neglected to speak about, at least I, I have, is uh, Kendrick's wife, um, who was with him, you know, during all this time, and especially in Vienna as well. I don't know if you want to mention a little bit about her. Yeah, Nora, she was German, South South mm. Africa, the daughter of a German businessman. Um, she was a perfect hostess. I mean, in her early years, we got a picture of her in the book. She's just so glamorous and gorgeous, uh, lovely, just supported him. But what I think is fascinating about her is, and the family believed the same, she didn't have a clue as to just what Kendrick was doing. She just thought it was completely normal for them to have these cocktail parties. She knew he was quite often golf in uniform, First World yeah. War. He's a military board. He's British passport control officer. But the question is, how much did she know? And we think she didn't know very much, but that saved her. That terrible time in August 38 when he was arrested, she was spared because she knew absolutely nothing mm. about his secret world. Mm. Mm. How can you live that double life? Incredible, isn't it? It is. I think it's, I think there's such fascination around espionage, isn't there? It's just that kind of, you know, that double life. And could we do it? How would we do it? And that kind of thing. I find it fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he's a classic example of that, isn't he? He is, yeah. He's that exterior, you know, fun-loving gentleman mm. in military uniform, but he hides a whole lifetime of secrets, doesn't he? He does, he does. I just would love to be a fly on the wall in those cocktail parties in Vienna. I could just see him with Sigmund Freud or something. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Wouldn't we love to be? Maybe one day we could be teleported back Yeah, that'd be good. to that world and see what really happened. Yeah. That would be fun, wouldn't it? It would. It would indeed. It would indeed. Well, um, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add, reflect on everything that we've discussed today? I think really, I, I hope people enjoy the book. I would like to see, and it, and his story is becoming more well-known, incredible mm. legacy and achievements. And at the end of the day, we owe so much. And I'll just finish, if I may, with a quote from the head of MI9, a branch of military intelligence, yeah. Norman Crockett, who wrote to Kendrick at the end of the war and said, you have done a Herculean task. A grateful nation ought to thank you for what you've done, but I doubt it will. And I think, but it couldn't because everything was was you know confined to the basement of the war office for over 70 yeah. years but now hopefully our nation can start to understand this man's incredible legacy mm, mm, i definitely hope so well um Helen, where can listeners find out more about you and your work well i have a website and do follow me on twitter or facebook mm -hmm. and yeah buy the book and i hope you'll enjoy it I'm sure you will. And if you've enjoyed Spymaster, then do take part one, which is the walls have ears as well. The two sort of go together. And I, I promise yeah. you, you won't be disappointed with the research I've uncovered. Well, I, if it's <laughs> um, if there's any endorsement, as I was reading Spymaster, I ordered a copy of the walls have ears. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> 
So that's like, because you mentioned it a couple of times, I thought, bloody hell, I need to read this book because I haven't read it. So honestly, I'm hooked. I'm hooked. Oh, it's, it's fascinating. It really is. So look, well done on everything there. I'm really, it's an excellent book. It's certainly um, changed my perspective a little bit on some aspects of World War Two now. I'm like, and uh, poor old Neville Chamberlain. You know? <laughs> oh, I've achieved something then. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> so no no thank you well look thank you so much for joining me today and thank you for everything you've done it's been uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you thank you thanks for listening this is secrets and spies 